0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 71, Pope Boniface V. Fifth? Why are they all just here? It is the name du jour, for sure, because it's the first pope we've had a fourth of, who was like, two popes ago. And now we're on to a five, so this is a very popular name at the time. So Boniface, whose full name is cited as Boniface Fuminios, was born in Naples and his father was called John. Also Fuminios. He's our first Neapolitan Pope. Mm Delicious. He's so got a bit of cherry and a bit of vanilla and a bit of chocolate. Isn't it it's supposed to be strawberry? I don't even know. I thought it was cherry. I haven't had Neapolitan ice cream in a very long time, but it is—it is good. So yes, maybe I'm conflagrating. Oh, it is strawberry. Damn, spumoni. Spumoni's like pistachio, pistachio, cherry, and vanilla. No, maybe it's pistachio. What the f- is it? <laughs> I don't eat a terrible amount of ice cream, but I'm pretty sure spumoni is just pistachio. Cherry pistachio and either chocolate or vanilla,
1: however uh. they
0: feel. That one is the superior of the ice creams. Mm, superior of the Neapolitans? Well we haven't had a spumoni pope, but we have a Neapolitan Pope, so apparently Neapolitan is a variation of spumoni. Spumoni is the Original? Yeah. Yeah, it's the OG, for sure. (laughs) I went on a hole. I apologize. No, this is what they're here for. Ice cream and pops. So, the fact that he is Neapolitan and and the fact that he is from the southern coast, we also need to acknowledge that it's very likely that his family probably had some Greek heritage. Which would explain the last name Fuminios, because that is super, super Greek. And again, I want to thank Sasha here for getting me the new Liber Pontificalis that we needed for this source, because this is where I got all of this information. Sweet. So we do know that he entered the church in the early 600s, and at the time of his election, he was serving as the cardinal priest for San Sisto, which at the time was a simple basilica, but will later become one of the titular churches in the city. And Boniface in this role soon became known as a champion of the poor and a man very dedicated to the clergy and was, as the Liber Pontificalis puts it, the mildest of men. Um... He is the vanilla in the Neapolitan. God, he sure is. But he was well-liked and popular, so when Pope Adeodatus died in November of 618, Boniface was elected to be the next pope fairly soon after, with a very swift election. But as we keep seeing, the church continued to wait for the confirmation of the Byzantine emperor, currently Heraclius, so it would be another year and a month before his consecration could take place. He was consecrated on December 23rd of 619. And all of these year-long Sede vacante gaps must have been Such a pain if you were trying to do church administration. Obviously, after an election, a pope-elect could act as the episcopus electus role, but waiting for an entire year to be able to do anything important or impactful must have been exhausting. But at least this time, the delay of the emperor's confirmation wasn't just entirely due to, like, waiting for travel time or an obstinate emperor who didn't want to approve a choice for pope. Heraclius had been really really busy. He was fighting the Persians as we discussed last week, and now Italy is also faced with a new problem for him to deal with. Remember last week when we discussed the murder of the exarch in Ravenna and the Neapolitan rebellion led by John of Canza? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even last week, it was 3 days ago Friday. Oh, okay. So, Naples revolted, there was a guy called John of Kanza. he had taken over Naples, and in the north, in Ravenna, the Exarch had been killed. And then the new Exarch, Eleutherius, had come in and killed everybody who was involved in those things, right? Yeah, okay. He put down the rebellion, he punished the murderers, put down John of Kanza's rebellion, and then he decided, hey... Rebellion's actually a great idea. Oh boy. Yeah, not only that, he decided that if he declared himself emperor, that would be an even better idea. To have the just self-confidence of these mediocre men. And because he just put down the rebellion in Naples, it would just be a great idea to just take that city over. For the ice cream. Yeah, for the ice cream. And then he's going to just march directly on Rome, because Rome would make a great capital. (laughs) What a good idea. I hate this guy. And if he could get the new pope to confirm him as the new emperor, wouldn't that just be wonderful? No. He thinks it would. So you and I are on one side of the debate, and Eleutherius is on the other Because this is 100% his plan. And when Pope Boniface found out that this is coming his way, he was no doubt in a state of absolute panic. He's going to have to decide whether he's going to pacify the threat that is marching directly to his doorstep, or if he was going to risk incurring the wrath of the actual Byzantine emperor. This is a choice that no one ever wants to make. No, it sounds awful. It sounds like a bad time. It sounds like a bad time all around. So, you can imagine his intense relief when in early 620, right after he is officially consecrated, while on the way to Rome, Eleutherius is killed by his own men in Licoleae, and his head is sent to the emperor as a gesture of goodwill. Uh, I wish I got a head as a present. No, I don't. It would be gross and rotty by the time it got to you. I don't need that. So we have an account from Paul the Deacon in his History of the Langobards that says, After these things, that same patrician Eleutherius, a eunuch, assumed the rights of sovereignty. While he was proceeding from Ravenna to Rome, he was killed in the fortress of Lucoli by his soldiers, and his head was brought to the emperor at Constantinople. So that threat is done. And and just as a side note, there is one single source that I read, which was just like a random article about Pope Boniface V, not a contemporary or primary source, that suggested that maybe Boniface was complicit in the death of Eleutherius. Well, like he didn't like him? Get this guy out? This guy is coming to march on my city, and he wants me to confirm him as the new emperor, and I don't want to piss off the actual emperor, so maybe just kill him dead. It'd be nice if you murdered him, thanks. Love, Bonnie face. <laughs> it's possible. It doesn't seem very likely that he would have been in a position to do this, but it could have happened. Like, he could have also been like, you know what, this sucks. Let's not have that happen, and they're like... The Pope told me to murder him. Kind of a who-will-rid-me-of-this-troublesome-exarch type of moment. Either way, whether he had something to do with it or not, likely not, uh, he was saved that mess. But Italy was again faced with a new mess after this that comes along with not having an exarch. And you may be asking yourself, with all this imperial kerfuffle going on, where are the Lombards? Where are the Lombards? Where are the hot dogs, even? Well, they're, they're not around anymore, quite yet. They will come back into our picture, but the Lombards, they have their own tensions brewing. So, for this moment, everything is not looking good. But while the secular authorities and the Lombards are clamoring to sort out their different competitions of power, Boniface turns his attention back to the church which he decides, you know what, everyone else is fighting and this is probably going to blow up for us, so let's just turn back around and refurbish the administration of the church because I don't want to deal with the rest of it. So we see him tightening up on certain aspects of church practice and the duties of ecclesiastical roles. He issued a decree that prohibits acolytes from the Lateran from performing baptisms, as that was supposed to be the responsibility of the deacon and to help distinguish between those two positions. He also prohibited acolytes from transferring the relics of the martyrs under any circumstance. You can't take this. (laughs) Yeah, you can't take this, you can't move this, you are not that person. And we don't really have a written record why Boniface put this in place, but considering the plundering of Christian cemeteries and the many sieges of Rome... The relics that the church was actually able to recover were few and precious. And based on this ruling coming in, we might postulate that some less-than-scrupulous acolytes had, like, misplaced or damaged some relics in the past. I lost a dead body. A whole body. I dropped that ancient arm bone, and it shattered into a million pieces. Whoops. At least now you can put them in reliquaries. (laughs) But... Basically, by limiting who might handle precious relics, he both affirmed the distinctions between deacons and priests and acolytes, but he also protected and preserved the relics from future mishandling, losing bodies, and all of those. He also issued an edict that required any cleric functioning as a notary to observe not just church rules, but the laws of the empire when it came to the carrying out of wills. And this seems to be Boniface's effort in creating sort of a a mutual observance, if you will. Basically, he felt that if the Empire must consider canon law when they implemented secular law, then the Church would mutually reciprocate in matters that lent more towards the secular and legal side. It's also a great look for him if the Empire had any suspicious leanings after that whole Exarch rebellion, Hey, Boniface, did you have anything to do with this? Oh, no, no, look, I'm doing all these good things that people observe your laws. No murder here. For the most part, these are simple, not particularly impactful administrative improvements that we see kind of pop up every couple popes. And if this is all we had to go on for his contributions, it wouldn't be particularly exciting. However, Boniface made a further innovation... One that would have a significant and lasting legacy, not only in church and legal practice, but also in popular imagination. What'd he do? What'd he do? What'd he do? What'd he do? What'd he what do, do? What do, do? He implemented the rights of asylum and established churches as places of sanctuary. Oh. Isn't that like the whole plot of The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Hey, see, there you go. The next line here I wrote is, These ideas are so ingrained in our popular imagination already. We all know what sanctuary is. We've seen a show or read a book where someone claims sanctuary in a church. And, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is Hunchback of Notre Dame. But for the sake of of actual clarity and not just relying on Victor Hugo or Disney, as much as I love Disney, because of the significance that this is going to take on for the church, we need to do a little exploration. I mean, after all, in our series, it wasn't that long ago that a pope was dragged out of a basilica by his beard. No sanctuary there. There was no sanctuary there. The concept of asylum goes back to the ancient Greeks and can be defined essentially as protection from persecution due to law or location of any type of sovereign authority. We use it mostly in relation to an individual who has committed some sort of crime and is looking for protection from legal consequences, and we can see why this might have been something that the church could see as useful or valuable. Remember, Christianity was once illegal, and the church had a pretty steep history of martyrdom, and the church is still in vehement opposition to execution. And by Boniface's ruling, all churches were places of sanctuary, which meant that as sacred, consecrated places of refuge, the church itself was bound to protect anyone inside who came seeking asylum. So... You may not kill this man, because now he is protected. He's my man. He belongs to God. Yes, that kind of thing. It should be acknowledged that this isn't the first time that sanctuary laws have been used in conjunction with churches. The 511 Council of Orléans in Gaul had decreed that churches were places of sanctuary, and therefore it was prohibited to remove any person from one, regardless of what acts they had committed, unless a solemn holy oath was sworn to do no harm to the person. And in 600, King Aethelbert of Kent established sanctuary and asylum laws in the English churches. So this isn't the first time ever that we're seeing this. But what Boniface is doing by issuing this decree is to make asylum and sanctuary customs apply to the Christian churches universally. And this is huge, right? This will have legal and political consequences for roughly a thousand years. And in some more isolated cases, right up to the current day, we still hear about people who seek certain types of asylum in churches. There was a case, I cannot remember where, not that long ago, where someone was avoiding deportation by seeking asylum in a church, and he had been living there for several years. Sanctuary and Asylum will become an absolute fundamental understanding of church space throughout the entire medieval period and beyond, and be a part, a massive, massive part, of why violence in the church is so intensely controversial. Like Thomas Beckett and the Patsy conspiracy come directly to mind! And that's the second time I've referenced Thomas Beckett in this episode, so... I mean, I feel like we could do a very interesting bonus episode on the future development of medieval sanctuary laws on its own, since Boniface is only putting very early stages of this, so we'll hang on to that as an idea as well. But needless to say, this is a church contribution that cannot be overstated. It is huge. But that's not the only thing he does, because he also gets very involved with the initiatives of the English Christianization, started by Pope Gregory and continued by Boniface IV. And as such, he gets discussed quite a bit by the venerable Bede. And I don't know if we've even mentioned Bede before in any great detail. We might have mentioned him in passing. But he is a very, very important historical source in English Christianity and the author of The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. He is known as the father of English history, and he was a Benedictine monk living in the late 600s and was later declared a doctor of the church by Pope Leo Thirteenth in the 19th century. Well, he gets to be a doctor. Yeah, he is a big deal. When we're going to be talking about medieval Christianity, Bede is going to join us a lot. So Bede tells us about these letters of exhortation written to Miletus, the Archbishop of Canterbury that we discussed last week, and to Justus, the Bishop of Rochester, who will go on to succeed Miletus in Canterbury after he died. He also notes that Boniface bestowed the pallium on Miletus and granted him the authority to ordain English bishops, which made Canterbury the metropolitan see of the growing English church. And as we know, it will be the highest diocese in all of England for a very long time to come. For a while, yeah. So he says, Meletus, who was Bishop of London, succeeded to the See of Canterbury, being the third archbishop from Augustine. Justus, who was still living, governed the Church of Rochester. These ruled the Church of English with much care and industry, received letters of exhortation from Boniface, Bishop of the Roman Apostolic See, who presided over the church after Deus it in the year of our Lord 619. Justus, the bishop of Rochester, immediately succeeded Miletus in the archbishopric. He consecrated Romanus, bishop of that see in his own stead, having obtained authority to ordain bishops from Pope Boniface. So the two letters that Bede mentions here are lost, but a few chapters later in Bede, we have two letters from Boniface preserved in his text. One is to Edwin, the king of Northumbria, in 625, about conversion to Christianity. And another to Aethelberg of Kent, who is Edwin's wife, that urged her, since she was already Christian, to encourage her husband's conversion. These are the letters in Book 2, Chapters 9 and 10 in Bede, that anybody wants to read. And I pulled out a few choice quotes for you. We have thought fit to extend our Episcopal care so far as to make known to you the fullness of the Christian faith, to the end that, bringing to your knowledge the gospel of Christ, which our Savior commanded should be preached to all nations, we might offer you, the cup, the means of salvation. For we suppose, since our two countries are near together, that your Highness has fully understood what the clemency of our Redeemer has effected in the enlightenment of our illustrious son, King Edbald, and the nations under his rule. We therefore trust with assured confidence that through the long-suffering of heaven, his wonderful gift will also be conferred on you, since indeed we have learned that your illustrious consort, who is discerned to be one flesh with you, has been blessed with the reward of eternity through the regeneration of the holy baptism. Ooh! We're going to see you saved, too, because your wife is a Christian, and surely you want to follow her in that decision. You put your dick in that, and now you're Jesus' best friend. Well, I suppose that's one way to put it. Let's see how you feel about what he wrote to the wife, Ethelbert. It's gonna be all so terrible, I'm not ready. Oh, yeah, probably. Our heart, therefore, has greatly rejoiced in the benefit bestowed by the bounty of our Lord, for that he has vouchsafed in your confession to kindle a spark of the orthodox religion, by which he might more easily inflame with the love of himself the understanding, not only of your illustrious consort, but of all the nation that is subject to you. But when our fatherly love earnestly inquired concerning your illustrious consort, we were given to understand that he still served abominable idols, and delayed to yield obedience in giving ear to the voice of the preachers. This occasioned us no small grief that he is one flesh with you, yet still remains a stranger to the knowledge of the supreme and undivided trinity. For it is written, they twain shall be one flesh. How then can it be said that there is a unity in the bond between you, if he continues a stranger to the brightness of your faith, separated from it by the darkness of detestable error? Wherefore, applying yourself continually to prayer, do not cease to beg of the long-suffering of the divine mercy and the benefits of his illumination, to the end that those whom the union of carnal affection has manifestly made in a manner to be one body may, after this life, continue in perpetual fellowship by the unity of faith. So hey, he puts his dick in you. He needs to be Jesus' best friend. (laughs) How can you let him put his dick in you if he does not love Jesus? Yeah, you love Jesus and you have such a lightness of faith. But, uh, he's dark and you're supposed to be one body, so you you gotta fix that. And Aethelberg was gonna fix that because Edwin would eventually convert. And in celebration, Boniface was said to have sent many gifts like a silver looking glass and a gold ornament and a cloak and a gilded ivory comb that get mentioned in these letters. And he also sends the support of missionaries to evangelize the king's territory. So, because of Boniface and his efforts with Queen Ethelburn, English Christianity is on the rise. Now, before we wrap up, Boniface didn't complete any new basilicas while he was pope, but he did complete a new cemetery. And this is the Cemetery of St. Nicomedes on the Via noventana And it was consecrated within his papacy. So he gets a little building credit for the physical space of the Church of Rome. And then he dies. Oh, boy. He dies on October 25th of 625 of natural causes, and he was buried in St. Peter's. Tomb was destroyed in the reconstruction of new St. Peter's but we have his epitaph. Well, we actually have two epitaphs, so. Here we go. This is the one from Wendy J. Reardon. Oh, Rome, full of mourning for the outstanding priest, together with me give out a groan of sobbing sorrow. Why? Because the spirit pressed by his trials is wont to weep, as is besides a people bereft of religious services. In hard times and in prosperous times, he was gentle, enduring all pleasant things, holding bad things in check. These are fitting proof of his own moral goods. He prevented men's crimes from arising, and those crimes which had already sprung up he cut down. He was generous towards the common good, and so was called Bonifacius, Considering his own money as public funds, he was magnanimous, wise, chaste, sincere, and fair. These are pious characteristics of the blessed. For you will be the leader of light to the highest ranks of widows and the phalanxes of orphans and the chorus of the blind. Then death wounded by its own spears growled seeing that a deserving man could live. He ruled the height of apostolic power for five years and two months and has gone away to the height of great honor. The church historian Baronius has another epitaph recorded for him, which seems to have been added to the original by Boniface's successor pope. So, this is the second epitaph. Why have the title rites of the tomb long laid still, and no one clatter and sigh? O you who seek to know, indolence was not to blame, for sorrow kept within is wont to wound more deeply. O sorrow, unfold your lamentation, be still in your blessed merits, that the deeds of the Supreme Father might be reported. This man from the line of Peter, nourished within Christ's fold, deserved to be the pastor of the holy flock. His pure faith was founded in kind-hearted prayers, and he kept vigil, singing hymns of Christ. Wise simplicity, lively skill, he flourished with serpentine simplicity. Through 40 years of priesthood had passed, his aged mind remained fruitful, his apostolic height he cultivated for nearly three years again and again, perfectly sustaining his rank. Your successor, Honorius, has constructed this with marble as an epitaphial tribute to your bountiful merits. I love you. Yeah, he does. So, that's Boniface. Alright. Let's rate this man. Papatum and Phallium. Church Asylum and Sanctuary. That is worth some points just on its own. But then he is also evangelizing English kings and expanding the English church. It's good. What do you want to give him? Um, I'm going to give him like a six. A six? A six is a good score. I, you know what? I will match you for that. I think that's fair, considering he didn't get a whole lot of time to do things, but sanctuary, man. So he will get a 12 in Puppetum and Valley. Fructus Prohibitum. We could give him a point for being complicit in the death of Eleutherius. One point between the both of us. Yes, I think that's fair. We've had three zeros in a row. We need at least a one in that category. Secular impactum. Okay, so we have already given points for asylum and sanctuary, but here I want to consider for a moment the impact that this has on the larger world at play because it provides an actual safe place. Is, is that worth any points that he provides this Opportunity for sanctuary. I'm gonna say yes, that it does. I would give him, I don't know, maybe like two, even if I'm being generous. I will also give him a two, which gives him a four in that category. Fossium Sanctus. All right, so now it's time to look at this man's face. So, first, I'm gonna show you the image that we always rate on. And here it is. Oh. Wow. Okay. He is definitely to that, like, a side that I, we don't normally see the popes pointing. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a full-on profile. There is no kind of... No three-quarter, no seven-eighth. He's just straight on looking beside him. And he looks kind of rough. Like, the way that the shading is on his cheek, he looks like he's got a big scar. Yeah he's got something going on there. He looks rough. He's got a real pronounced nose but then an even more pronounced upper lip. Yeah and then his chin. And mm-hmm. I think it's partially because his forehead is so flat that the rest of him looks so pointy. He would definitely have some sort of like Eastern European slash Russian features about him. If you were looking at him full on, he's got like a very heavy brow, very robust facial hair. You know, I could picture what he would look like from head on and I'm seeing it. So what do you think it's worth? Look, he accidentally looks like a villainous Russian man. He really does. It's not his fault. I find him interesting and different. I'm going to give him Maybe a six. Okay, that's pretty good. I was thinking a three, so we'll give him a nine in that category, which gives him a 2.25 when we calculate. Well, I don't know what's up with his other side, that this was the side they went with. Huge scar. (laughs) And and you know, it's funny, because I'm going to show you a woodcut now, and in the woodcut, he's facing the same way, so his other side must have been wrong. Because there he is. He still has that villainous Russian man look about him in that one, though. He really does. His scar is not there, though. I have two more, and one is still facing that way. So there's that one. Looks like a a less heavy evil Russian man. That looks like a fat five-year-old. Oh, and then the other way. That one has a soft chin. The softest chin and the most neck beard I've ever seen. That is a lot of neckbeard. It just, like, melts right into the, the uh, cloak that he's wearing, so. Probably a good thing we rated him on his first one, because otherwise, it's not great. Tempus Pontificus. December 23rd, 619, to October 25th, 625. Six years and a score of 1.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! he is not a saint so he does not get that point does not get to be the patron saint of evil russians with neckbeards you know maybe that's a good thing do we want to give evil russians a patron saint probably not 80s villains for sure and his total score is not bad he did a 20.75 pretty solid. he's holding his own with the popes around him because we've had a 23 a 23 a 32 and now a 20 so he's blending well with the men of his age the average of these bony faces now i have to ask you is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough for a papal bull look sanctuary is a thing everybody knows yeah but he just does not have a zip to him He he does not have a zip to him, it's true, because I, you know, I'm working ahead in what we're doing with Popes, and when I go back to actually sit down and record with you, sometimes I'm like, ah, yes, this man, and I definitely felt that for next week's episode, and I definitely did not feel that for him, so that is a pretty strong indication to me that, no, Boniface, I'm sorry, you do not have it. But we do appreciate the sanctuary. You're just not a spicy boy enough for us to give you a paper bowl. Oh, you like spicy boys, hey? Ooh, wait till next week. But we are not done yet because we have a surprise a Pope Watch. That's what you said. You said that as... We were getting ready to record some news hit. Breaking news. Some breaking weird ass news. So are you ready? Look, I don't even know what you're gonna say, so go on. It's weird. Okay. On day of recording today, which is january thirteenth, twenty twenty, Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth and Cardinal Robert Sarah, the prefect for the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Sacraments have released a book called From the Depths of Our Hearts, defending the celibacy of priests. So the book is said to have come from the two men's concerns over the Synod for the Amazon, which we discussed a couple months ago. Oh yeah, the married men being priests. Exactly. The viri probati, where you know they're looking to ordain married men to perform sacraments in remote areas that don't have priests. Which, by the way, there has not been an official resolution accepting or rejecting that idea quite yet. It's it's expected to come fairly soon. Well, clearly they have feelings about it. Oh, oh, they are just so worried about the celibacy that they felt that they need to write on the matter, causing. A very unusual and unprecedented and awkward situation where the retired pope who promised to be quiet and obey the current pope is now speaking out on an active issue that the current pope is considering and has not made a decision on. But these two men feel that they cannot be silent on the crisis facing the church, and that is a quote. This is very strange, because as I quote from an article on the Catholic Register, quote, The published excerpts do not discuss the continuing practice of ordaining married men in the Eastern Catholic Churches, nor the exceptions granted by Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict himself to married former ministers of the Anglican Communion and other Christian denominations who become Catholic. So, no, 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 they're just dealing with the issue that's happening right now, not the places where they've actually made, like, concessions on celibacy. And let's not forget that last year, Pope Emeritus Benedict also wrote an essay where he laid the blame for the church sex abuse scandals on the sexual revolution of the 60s. Because somehow sexual liberation made pedophiles in the church because people are more open about their sexuality, suddenly the church got real weird. Mm-hmm. So, now as for how this book is going to affect Pope Francis, the likelihood is that it, it won't at all. Pope Francis has been frank and open about being for celibacy of priests and not open to the idea of optional celibacy. He's even quoted Pope Paul VI who said I would rather give up my life than to change the law on celibacy? When people ask, he says, "Oh, I think about what Pope Paul VI said," which means he's probably not going to change his mind. I mean, he was slightly open to the viri probati debate as far as like the most remote places in in the Amazon or whatever, but we still don't know what he's going to decide on that. So this is a very odd situation in this book. Just being dropped like that. So that's a thing that's happening. And the book will be published in English on February 20th for any of our listeners who feel that they need to read whatever Cardinal Sarah and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI have to say on celibacy. Well, I don't, I don't feel the need for that. I'm not very interested in a man I I personally believe is probably very embroiled in all the scandals anyways. We're not there yet. So anyways, we will end this with one special thank you this week because I have to thank Rutger K again from Twitter, who I thanked last week, but I'm thanking again because he sent me more sources and I'm so excited and there's so much to read and I'm so excited. So thank you so much. When people send us sources, I do little happy dances. She does. It's wonderful. And I love it so much. Thank you so much for all that you have sent me. So, so awesome. And with that, we will say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.